If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 5 as we continue in the book of Genesis today. And uh, we got a little precursor of this in the, uh, the New Testament reading from Luke chapter 5, but we're going to be looking uh, this morning to the, uh, to the genealogy stretching from, from Adam down to Noah. So if, you, if you're looking at Genesis chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. He had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived... 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were... 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 100 87 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his son Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so we come this morning to this uh, genealogical account of the generation stretching from Adam 
down to Noah and Noah's three sons. This is, as it were, a condensed reckoning of world history from the time of creation down to the time of the flood. Now, for our purposes this morning, we'll be considering this under, under three main points. Uh, first of all, the likeness of Adam. The, secondly, the reign of death. And then thirdly, the faith of our fathers. So we have the likeness of Adam, the reign of death, and the faith of our fathers. But first, however, I do want to uh, speak a little bit about about this genealogy here in in comparison with uh, some of the other genealogies in Scripture. In Scripture, there are a couple of different types of genealogies. We have some that have sometimes been referred to as, as open genealogies. And there are some genealogies that are referred to as closed genealogies. Now, closed genealogies are those that are exhaustive in the sense that they give you all of the names of the people in the, in the lineage from the point at which the genealogy starts to the point at which it ends. Genealogies that are called open are those genealogies that are, as it were, truncated with certain generations being Left out. You find this uh, uh, open genealogy in a genealogy like that given in the uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter one verse eight. He skips over three of the kings of Judah. He skips over Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. He goes straight from Joram to Uzziah. But nevertheless, the stated genealogy in Matthew is still true. Joram did become the father of Uzziah, not in the sense that he was his immediate father, but in the sense that he was Uzziah's ancestor. The terms father and son are not always used in Scripture in the strictest and narrowest possible way. And this is even evident in Matthew's genealogy, where he begins by saying, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Jesus is the son of David, David is the son of Abraham, but in neither case. Jesus is not the immediate son of David, nor is David, nor Jesus, the immediate son of Abraham. And so the point is, is that an open genealogy is true even when it's not exhaustive. The same phenomenon happens in tracing the lineage of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 3, if you uh, compare the, uh, the lineage of Ezra that's, that's given there in Ezra 7, 3 with the corresponding lineage given in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 7 through 11, it becomes clear that in the, the genealogy given in Ezra 3, there are actually six generations that are skipped. But it's okay. It's still true. There was a line of descent. And just because a man is said to be the father of someone else does not follow that they were the immediate father of that someone else. There are these open genealogies. Now, what does all of that have to do with Genesis chapter 5? Well, Genesis 5, obviously we have a genealogy. And the question that comes up in connection with this is whether this genealogy is open, are there missing links here, or is this closed? Is this all of the links? Are there missing generations here or not? Now, the historic Christian opinion has been that there are not any missing generations here, and therefore that from Adam to Noah there's a span of ten generations, and given the numerical data of the genealogy here, there are about 656 years between creation of the world and the time of the flood, which, according to Genesis 7-6, came in the 600th year of Noah's life. And I think 
that historic opinion is correct. I think that the genealogy here is closed and that all of the generations are accounted for. And to that end, I would put forward uh, two, two lines of reasoning. The first is that in those cases where we have in Scripture these open genealogies, the reason we know those are open genealogies is because of scriptural data that fills in the gaps. Such is certainly the case if you compare Matthew chapter 1 with the history of the kings, and such is the case if you compare the open genealogy of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7 with the closed genealogy of 1 Chronicles chapter 6. In the case of Genesis 5, however, this list and this lineage is the same every time it appears in Scripture. We have the lineage between Adam and Noah given to us in three places of Scripture that I know of. You might come up with a one that I'm not aware of, and that's fine, but in the three places that I'm aware of, Genesis 5, 1 Chronicles 1, and Luke chapter 3, the names in this lineage are all the same. 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what we find. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Those names and those names alone literally are the first four verses of the book of 1 Chronicles. Likewise, in that genealogy of Luke chapter 3 that our brother Tom read for us, you find these generations of Genesis 5 without any additions or subtractions. Certainly the writings of Josephus are not inspired, but he's at least a historical witness you find the same thing in Josephus, book one of his Antiquities of the Jews. As he's listing out uh, history, these are the generations that he mentions uh, between Adam and Noah. And so for the first line, I would say this is a complete genealogy simply because we don't have any evidence elsewhere that there's anything missing here. And the second thing I would say in regard to this being a closed genealogy is that one way or the other, we have to make sense of the, the numbers, the numerical data that is given in the sense of the ages of these men when their sons were born to them. My general sense is that probably one of the biggest reasons why people would want to suspect that this is an open genealogy or would lean that way is that they don't like the very clear young earth implications given the genealogy as it stands. But even if they want to claim that there are generations missing, like some of the other genealogies that are in the Bible, they still have to do something with the numbers. The numbers in the chapter communicate something. And they communicate something more than simply that the men of this period had babies at rather old ages and that these men lived for a rather long time. If you look at just a, a representative sample of this. Let's look at uh, verses 6 through 8 concerning Seth. Seth lived 105 years. He became the father of Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. That's, that's pretty tight there. If you actually look at, at how these numbers are, are stacking up, Seth lived so far has a son, he lives so far longer, and then you have the total computation of his age, and then he died. The numbers communicate something, and we can't simply just, just brush them aside. So far as I know, all of the open genealogies in Scripture do not have numbers associated with them in the way that we find here in Genesis 5 or that we'll find later on in Genesis chapter 
11. Now, I realize all that may be a bit more technical than some might have preferred, but still it's worth considering when thinking about and dealing with a genealogy like this. And to my mind, the, the biblical evidence all points to this being a complete genealogy, which means that we must not disregard the numerical data here when we're thinking about the age of the earth and the relationship between creation and the flood. Now, let's, with that being said, let's, let's move ahead then to, uh, to our first point, which is the, the likeness of Adam. And so at the outset of this genealogy here in, in verse 1, Moses directs our minds back to creation itself, right? With Adam being created in the likeness of God, mankind being created male and female, the man and the woman are blessed by God, they're named Adam, man, in the day in which they were created. And so far this is, this is great, this is wonderful. But as we know, we've already seen Genesis 3, all did not remain wonderful. And therefore, we read this in verse 3, and we should think about the implications of this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The son who was born to Adam was born in Adam's likeness and in Adam's image. Now, had Adam been a sinless man at this point, this would have been an unmitigated blessing. Seth would have been born in the image of God precisely the same way that Adam had been created in the image of God. The problem, of course, was that Adam was not sinless at this point. Adam was a sinner at this point. The image of God, in other words, which was in him, was marred by sin. He himself, therefore, was fallen, and thus the offspring which he brought forth, being in his image, would be fallen as well. I think the canons of Dort helpfully stated the, the fall of Adam and then the spread of fallen nature to Adam's posterity. When they put it this way, they said, Man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his creator and things spiritual in his will and heart with righteousness, and in all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon him self-blindness, terrible darkness, futility, distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all his emotions. This is talking about the, the change that happened in Adam. He's originally created upright, but then in exercising his free will in rebellion against God, he brings upon himself this, this darkness, this futility, this perversity. And they continue on speaking about how that affects his children. Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. This is what happened in the fall. Adam's human nature, by virtue of his sin, had become vitiated, twisted, and corrupt. And we, too, now are fallen. The effects of Adam's sin reach down to us, which is why Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. We stand guilty in Adam. Adam's sin is imputed to us as much as he is our covenant head and also by virtue of the fact that the human nature that we receive now from our very conception is tainted. And therefore David speaks in Psalm 51.5 and says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. This is what it means when we read that Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. The old theological term used to express this truth is original sin. Sometimes this has been used in a broad sense, sometimes in a narrow sense. In the broad sense, it refers both to the fact that we have Adam's sin imputed to us and that we're counted guilty in Adam, and also that we have sin now inherent within us, that in our hearts we wickedly now desire to do those things which God has been forbidden. So in the broad sense, original sin has been used to speak of both imputed sin, imputed guilt, and also sin inherent within us. Narrowly, sometimes it's just been used to refer to the part that sin is inherent within us. And regardless of whether you want to use the term narrowly or broadly, both aspects are true. Because we all sinned in Adam, and because we derive our human nature from a sinful forefather, we have sin imputed to us, counted against us, and we have sin inherent within us. Which is to say that in our fallen state, sin clings, as it were, to our human nature. I think the Lutherans in the formula of Concord expressed it well when they said that original sin is an inexpressible impairment and such a corruption of human nature that nothing pure nor good has remained in itself and that all its internal and external powers, but that it is altogether corrupted so that original sin, through original sin, man is in God's sight spiritually lifeless and with all his powers, dead indeed to that which is good. And isn't, that, isn't that what we find in the New Testament? Think, think of Ephesians 2, by nature, children of wrath. And as a result of this original sin imputed to us, and original sin now inherent within us, we have evil desires. We have lusts within our heart. The old Latin term for it was concupiscence, and this has come down to us in English in both theological discussion and in the, the King James Version of the Bible. A few, few places translates uh, this, this word for evil desire or lust as concupiscence. And the bottom line is that we, being the descendants of Adam and born in Adam, have this, this evil desire within us, evil desire for all kinds of evil and wicked things. And even evil desire itself, even just the desire, is sinful and needs to be put to death and not coddled and clung to and pampered. And thus Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So in other words, just as we need to reckon ourselves dead to the, the outward and visible deeds of the flesh, so also we need to reckon ourselves dead to evil desire, to the lusts of the flesh. 
And unfortunately, this is something that doesn't go away even when we are Christians. And therefore, Paul says to the Galatians, Galatians 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Even as believers, we still have the lusts of the flesh waging war against the Spirit. This, in large part, is what Romans 7 is, is all about. Romans 7, 8, sin taking the opportunity through the commandment produced within me coveting, that is, lust, or in the King James, concupiscence of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And so, friends, we are fallen. The transgression of Adam brought death to himself and sin and death to all of his descendants. That is the bad news of our predicament. This is how we come into the world. And once we come here, we desire to do evil, and we actually do evil. I think the German theologian Martin Chemnitz expressed it well when he said, in fact, human reason can neither imagine nor understand how profound, horrible, and grave and evil original sin is. But that must be learned and known from the divinely revealed word. For the heart of man is so evil, perverse and shattered, that it is inscrutable. And so great is the magnitude of the original sickness that it cannot be healed. But by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost, this healing begun in this life will be completed in eternal life to come. This is our condition. And even as believers, the healing begins now, thank God that it does. But it will be completed in eternity. And thus, as Paul continued in Romans 5, he laid out not only the, the bad news of our sin, but also the good news of the gospel. Therefore, he says in Romans 5.15 that the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, namely Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And this is the gospel. Though we are born as sinners and willfully sin against God, nevertheless, in his mercy, God has sent us a Savior to deliver us from the wrath that we deserve as those who are both born in sin and as those who willfully sin. The gospel is the free gift of the grace of God. And even though we who trust in Christ still have these evil desires of the flesh within us, we can cry out with Paul. We can say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And thank God we can also say with him, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, the law, uh, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. That's what we find in Romans 7, 24 through chapter 8, verse 3. And so we have, we have redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam. The second Adam 
Jesus Christ did not listen to Satan or to anyone else, but steadfastly obeyed God in all things for us. He obeyed in our place. And, as those who trust in him, we have also been given the Spirit, by whom we are strengthened and empowered, and with whom we may walk, so that we do not obey the lusts of the flesh. Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And if you're here this morning... And you've not yet repented of your sins and turned away from them and believed in Jesus Christ. You're still in the problem that is presented to us in Genesis 5. You came into this world in the image of Adam. And if you've not been renewed by the working of the Holy Spirit through believing the gospel, then you're still in the image of Adam. You're still a sinner. You still need to be reconciled to God. And the only way to be reconciled to God, is to come to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world, went to the cross to die for sinners, to take the punishment that we deserved, to take the punishment that I deserved. No one comes to the Father except through faith in Jesus Christ. And so turn to Jesus Christ today. As it stands, you're currently under judgment and under condemnation for your sins. And another aspect of the bad news of Genesis 5 is that you don't have forever to make this right. You don't have forever to get right with God. So you need to take advantage of the opportunity that you have to repent and to believe. And let's look back to the text, which brings us to our, our second point, which is the reign of death. Now in this, in this genealogy here, there's a, a usual pattern that is followed. And uh, I think verses 6 through 8 again is a, is a good uh, a good example of what this pattern typically looks like. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And so the usual pattern is like this. You have the name, the years of life that they lived before they gave birth to their son, You have the name of that son, you have the years of life that they lived after the birth of that son, statement that they had other sons and daughters, and then the total years of life that they lived are given, and then along with that statement, and he died. Now as we'll see, there are some occasions here in Genesis 5 in which there's a a deviation from that usual form, but the general pattern is there. And... You'll notice that though there are various names and various ages, yet with the exception of Enoch, there is a sad refrain. He died, he died, he died. Now we'll talk about Enoch in a moment, but you see in verse 5, in reference to Adam, he died. Verse 8, about Seth. Verse 11, Enosh. Verse 14, Kenan. Verse 17, Mahalalel. Verse 20, Jared. Verse 27, Methuselah. Verse 31, Lamech. He died. As Paul would say in Romans 5.14, death reigned from Adam until Moses. And this is part of the proof of that reign. Death reigned. How do we know? Because these men died. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12. This is why there is death in the world. Death is unnatural. It is an enemy. It is an aberration. Death comes on account of sin. Indeed, 
The wages of sin is death. This is what Adam earned because of his sin. These were his wages. And these are our wages as well. We have earned death. We deserve it. And the day of our death is approaching. Now realize, for those of you who are younger, you might think that you have a long time until you die. And you might. You might have a long time until you die. Some of you who are very young might have 80, 90, who knows, maybe even 100 years before you die. But you don't know that. Some people die very young. During my senior year in high school, that fall, I was a a pallbearer for a friend of mine from church who died suddenly in a car crash. That following spring, there were a couple of other teenagers whom I knew that had died. One had been battling cancer for uh, for some time, and another died of disease that came upon her more quickly. I think she was like 16. The other, the other boy was 19. And none of us knows how long we have to live. And therefore, none of us knows how long it will be before we stand before the Lord and have to give an accounting to Him for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. And unless Christ returns, one day, every one of us here in this room will die. None of us knows when that day will be. And so what that means then, as I hinted at this earlier, is that there is an urgency to the call of the gospel to be reconciled to God. In other words, this is something that we can't afford to put off until later, because you don't know if there will be a later. And so Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's calling out to these people, be reconciled to God. And then he says to them, just a couple verses later, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't know how long the now is going to last, but I guarantee you something, it's not going to last forever. And the way in which we receive this grace of God is through faith, through trusting in Christ who has come. And even though Christ had not yet come here in the days that are recorded for us here in Genesis, we still see noteworthy examples of faith. Men who trusted the Lord, men who were looking back to the promise that had been given to Eve, and we find faith, as it were, of our forefathers. For every one of us here in this room, the men in this, in this lineage, uh, except when you get down to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that's when... That's when the family tree as it exists on the earth now gets spread apart. But up down through Noah, our ancestors are here. The first ten of our earthly ancestors are listed here. And so that means that when we see the faith of Enoch or the faith of Lamech, we're seeing the faith and the faithfulness of our ancestors. And so that's our third point here is the the faith of our fathers. And the most obvious example of this faith here in chapter 5, is is Enoch in verses 21 through 24. Now, of all the men named in this genealogy, Enoch lives the shortest life, and he lives the shortest by a long shot. He lives for 365 years. Now, most of the men here lived 900-plus years or or awfully close to it. Uh, But Enoch's life was less than half of that, even less than half of Lamech's life. Lamech lived to be 777. And yet, it was Enoch who was obviously pleasing to God. Obviously pleasing to God. He walked with God. 
And this is stated twice. You see that both in verse 22 and in verse 24, that he walked with God. And so Enoch was a man who loved God and who was blessed by God. And oddly enough, Enoch was not blessed by God with a long earthly life. Enoch was blessed by God actually with a short earthly life. But he did escape death. And so we read there, Enoch walked with God And he was not, for God took him. Enoch didn't die. God took Enoch to himself and spared him death. And this demonstrates that there was a knowledge of life with God, that is, of of life hereafter, even at this early period in the Old Testament. They they understood that this earthly life was, was not all that there was. Now, certainly the contours of the life that is to come are more clearly sketched for us in the New Testament, but the evidence is here for all who have eyes to see it. If the Old Testament only taught earthly rewards and blessings, then this godly man, Enoch, clearly got the short end of the stick. He's the one singled out for having walked with God, but he's the one who gets the shortest lifespan in this lineage. But in fact, His life was short because he was pleasing to God. And so God took him. And therefore we read in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Such a man was Enoch. He was a man of faith, a man who was pleasing to God because of his faith. He believed that God is, and he believed that God rewards those who seek him. And this still holds true today, that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, obviously, the the translation of Enoch directly from earth to the presence of God bypassing death is fairly unique. This happened only two places of which we are aware. Enoch, here in Genesis 5, and Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2. But even still, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. He doesn't reward all who seek him in the exact same ways, but still he does reward those who seek him. And he does this, not because we deserve it, but because he's gracious to us. And so we find in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a reward, a reward of eternal life, not because we have earned it, but because God is gracious. It is through God's grace that God crowns his gifts. In other words, everything that we receive from God is grace. Now, we've seen here our depravity in original sin. We've seen that we deserve the sentence of death. And we deserve not only physical death, but we deserve eternal spiritual death under the wrath of God. This is is what we deserve. This is the wages that we have earned. But God in his grace gives us the gift of saving faith by which we trust Christ and run to him and believe in him and cling to him as our savior. And as we find in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in us both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. It is God who gives us faith and enables us to seek him. It is God who works in us such that we desire to do good works. And he works within us then to bring those good works out to fruition. We're dependent upon his gift of grace at every single step along the way. Every good work which we do is because of his grace which is already at work within us. But yet this grace does not make those who receive it sluggish and passive. The grace of God stirs those who possess it up into action. Scripture says that he rewards those who diligently seek him. There's nothing good promised for those who kind of sort of seek him. The prophet says, uh, the Lord says through the prophet, that you will seek me and find me, and you seek me with all of your heart. And in the very context where we are told that it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we are also told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to be responsible, active, seeking God, serving God, and walking with God. And so we must. But it is God's grace that initiates, it's God's grace that sustains, it is God's grace that brings to completion. So it was with Enoch, so it was with all who belong to Christ. And we see another example of the, the faith of our fathers here in regard to Lamech in verse 29, when at the birth of Noah, he says, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And it is because of this that he named his son Noah. Now the name Noah seems to be a play on words that's related to this word for rest or, or comfort. And if we give due consideration to Lamech's words, we find that his speech here indicates a certain weariness with life in this world. By the time that Noah was born, Lamech had been in the world for 182 years. He had labored and toiled to make a living for himself and for his family. And by all appearance, he was tired. He was worn out. It's because the Lord had cursed the ground. It had made life hard. It's a burden now just to survive. But it also seems that Lamech, though he was weary of the world, is also a man of faith. It seems that he was looking for redemption, for help, and for rest. It seems that he was clinging to the promise that the seed of the woman would indeed crush the head of the serpent. And so it seems that he's hoping here that Noah might in fact be that one, that one who would bring rest and comfort by bringing redemption. Gerhardus Voss commented on Lamech's words by noting, this saying expresses a profound sense of the burdensomeness of the curse and insofar of the burdensomeness of sin, the cause of the curse. And it also voices a perhaps premature expectation that from this burden, relief and comfort will soon be found. Now, I understand that Lamech's language here is not as overt and as explicit as possible. And I understand that there are other ways that his words might be understood, but I'm inclined to think that this is what was going on here, that, that Lamech was weary of the world, that he has in his mind this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that all would be made right, and that he's hopeful that maybe, maybe 
Noah, who was born to him, would not be simply another good farmhand to help with the work that needed to be done, but that Noah would bring a greater rest and comfort to him than that. Now, the subsequent narrative of Genesis, of course, makes it clear that God did use Noah for a great purpose, the purpose of preserving life on the earth when the judgment of the flood came. But even though Noah was a godly man and a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter 2.5, he was not the promised seed of the woman. Though he himself was righteous by faith and was a preacher of righteousness, and even though the ark which he built was a, a type, a, a picture of the great salvation which God would provide for his people, Noah was not the Messiah. The Messiah was still a long way out, but he was coming. And it was through Noah that he came. Even though Noah was not the one that would bring the ultimate rest, nevertheless, Noah did play a part to help bring into the world the one who would bring the rest. And that one who does bring the rest is our Lord Jesus Christ. As we read this morning from Matthew 11, he's the one who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now those words of Jesus are truly beautiful and wonderful. But they are really only beautiful and wonderful if we have the perspective of Lamech. A perspective that says something's not right here as we look out onto the world. If, if we don't have that perspective that rightly understands these things that we've considered here this morning about the, the reign of death and the fact that we have original sin imputed to us and inherent within us, if we don't understand these things, then the words of Jesus inviting all to come to him and find rest are not going to be near so meaningful to us as if we actually understand these things and if we have the perspective of Lamech who's worn out by the world. The words of Jesus inviting us to come to him for rest are really only good news when we realize that we're fallen and sinful, we're subject to death, subject to judgment. And this is our condition as those who are born into this world. And outside of Christ, our recovery is hopeless. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, there is rest, there is forgiveness, there is new life, there is reconciliation with God to be found. And so friend, if you're worn out with life, worn out with the world, like Lamech, and come to the greatest son of Lamech, the Lord Jesus Christ, for rest. And this doesn't mean that all of your earthly problems will vanish. They won't. But if you come to Christ, you will find rest for your souls. You will find peace with God. As we find in Psalm 2, how blessed are all who take refuge with God, uh, take refuge in Him. And in coming to Christ, and in finding peace with God, then you can walk with God like Enoch, our other father in the faith whom we've considered here this morning. And in doing so, we, we begin walking in the light with God as God is in the light. And we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, as we find in 1 John chapter 1. And though we do not expect to escape death like Enoch did, nevertheless, we do expect on the basis of God's word, that he will one day 
take to himself all who belong to Christ. And so let us learn, like Lamech, to be weary of the world and to look for God's promises of rest. And let's learn, like Enoch, to walk with God by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, its truth, and how it speaks to us as those who have the image of Adam, those who were born into sin. Lord, we thank you for the bad news, which convicts us of sin, shows us the reality of death. But Lord, we thank you also for the good news, that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, that in Christ there is rest. And so, Father, we pray that we would imitate the faith of our forefathers, that in growing weary of the world, we would look to Christ for rest, and in doing so, that we would walk with you. We pray that you would help us, give us strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.